Hello, everyone. This is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. I am a religion recovery coach who helps people with life after religion. And this podcast allows people to share their stories of abuse and religious trauma in various religions and cults. Some guests come on the show to discuss specific topics to educate and bring awareness. Discussions will range from purity culture, mental health, religious trauma, Christian culture, deconstruction, spirituality, and much more. Now, let's get into this episode of Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. Hello, everyone. This is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger, and I am beyond excited to have Nikki Pappas back on the show today. And for those of you, she was a guest for the second episode of this season, and she is now back to talk about her book, As Familiar as Family. And I want to give a quick little intro from her website just uh, for new listeners. Um, she is a writer and author of a recently completed memoir titled titled As Familiar as Family. And in 2020, she started the Broadening the Narrative podcast where she talks to people who are broadening the narrative um, that she was taught within white evangelicalism. She has three young children um, with her husband, Stephen, and she desires to spark hope in the world all around her and live an embodied faith now on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you so much, Nikki, for coming on this show. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be back. Of course. And like, you know, for those um, who aren't familiar with, you know, with Nikki and me, like we, we've just began like really supporting each other online. And I was really honored to like read her book before it was released and, you know, write a review and help support her and post about it. And really, this is why she's on the show today, because, you know, her book, I think it came out September 16th, right? That was when it was published. That was when we had like the official launch party. The official yeah. launch. Okay. <laughs> and so today we are here to talk about her memoir. Um, and it's quite an accomplishment. So congrats. Like... <laughs> I am so, this might sound weird, but like, I'm so proud of you for just doing that. And like the authenticity and the vulnerability of the book. Um, and, you know, I know the hard thing about writing a memoir is that a lot of the times when you write it, the people who are in it are still alive. And we'll get into that later. But that's something I'm struggling with as I'm writing my memoir is like a lot of the people I'm writing about are still alive. And so just for you, for viewers or listeners who aren't familiar, I'll just tell them a little bit about your book, like the title message and like where they can buy it. Yes. Well, first, thank you so much for being part of the launch team oh, yeah. for my book, for reading, for mm -hmm. writing a review, posting about my book. And I receive all of the messages of being um, proud of me because, yeah, I think it's hard to, it's hard for me to accept the mm -hmm. compliments or the things. And so working on receiving that so with a yeah. lot of gratitude, I receive um, that. So, yeah, so the full title of my book, and I'll hold up a copy here because you do like the videos as well, right? It'll get, I, I don't, I don't anymore. No? But 
Okay. I, I can totally, though, <laughs> I can post a clip of this moment for like promo. Oh, so I can yeah. do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so my book is called As Familiar's Family, Leading the Toxic Religion I Was Groomed For. So just some light reading for anyone interested. And it can <laughs> we love the humor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, if you want to explore some abuse in various yeah. forms. So yeah, a little, little warning at the top for what might come up in this conversation. Mm, abuse yeah. of various mm. kinds, spiritual, sexual, uh, mm. psychological, right? Narcissistic abuse, all of those things. So yeah, so my book is out now and mm. it is a memoir. And in short, it's about abuse and about healing and my journey through both of those things. And on the back of the book, you know, you can read the, the full spiel of how I experienced abuse as love from a young age. Mm-hmm. And then, right, like I am now as an adult and then in my book, exploring and examining the ways in which I was groomed for unhealthy relationships and toxic Mm. religion, like what I ended up experiencing at a church. And so in my book, I begin with my family of origin and see Mm. how that those stories and those misbelief burdens that I took on, how those led me to a church where I was spiritually abused and where theology, like toxic theology Mm. and beliefs were layered onto the misbelief burdens I uh, internalized in childhood. And so my book is really chronicling my journey to find my own voice and to find a way out of that toxic church system. Mm. And that began once I understood how the spiritual abuse and the power dynamics, Mm. the emotional detachment, as well as the narcissism that I was experiencing in the church, how those things were as familiar as family to me, hence the Mm. title there. Right. And so by sharing my story, I really do want to help empower other people Mm -hmm. to share their stories and to leave toxic things in their own lives so that we can experience healing together, right? Like the ways that we've been able to support each other. Like I just want Mm -hmm. us all to support Uh, each other in healing and growing, right? And so people can buy Familiar's Family on Amazon, on Mm -hmm. Bookshop, on Barnes & Noble, if you type it in, as well as through my website, NikkiPappas.com. And I have a few more little launch goodies, like a sticker and a magnet Mm. and a bookmark. I have a few more of those things that I can send with a signed copy. If people head to my website and use the code free gift, all in capital letters, all one word. Mm -hmm. But if a signed copy is not a priority for people, like I said, Amazon, Bookshop, Mm -hmm. and Barnes and Noble is where they can buy it. Oh, yes. That's so, so great. And like, I just want to let you know, I love the sticker. Um, Tell your story. I have it on my laptop and it's just such a great reminder um, for me because like, I just love stickers so much. So when I saw like, yes, I'm like, I'm putting this on my laptop. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) So great. Um, But like, what, what are the feelings of releasing this memoir? Oh, I know. (laughs) A really good question with a lot of layers. And yeah, a lot of feelings. At first, there was just a ton of relief, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I love the word you're using, like, of releasing this book. And Mm -hmm. so with the release came a lot of relief. One, Mm -hmm. because the time-consuming and all-consuming self-publishing process. So it was like, okay, it's over. But also because the stories that had been pent up inside of me Mm. for so long were finally released into the world. And so that was the kind of the overarching 
feeling, but also there was a lot of gratitude. And I shared several times about a text message that I got from author Marla Taviano on the day of the launch party on September 16th. And I've shared this, how she texted me, quote, no big expectations, no giving in to disappointment, just Mm -hmm. lots of gratitude for each person who was here for me, made time for me, read my book, grateful, grateful, grateful. And how can I give back? Mm -hmm. And so that has been on repeat for me, you know, and I'm overflowing with gratitude for the launch team that you're a part of and all the people who came around me in that process and how my book has just been held with such tenderness Mm -hmm. and reading the reviews from people and just sitting in a lot of gratitude and just, yeah, being so encouraged by people. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I'm glad I got to enjoy that, that launch party and the period leading up to the launch party and everything connected to it before Mm -hmm. my family started finding out, right? I got to celebrate. Mm -hmm. I got to sit in gratitude. I got to just have a lot of positive emotions Mm -hmm. uh, before some of the uh, less positive emotions came along. And I just want to say here, Naya Abernathy with the Dignity Effect is her organization, the Dignity Effect. She talks about how all emotions are worthy of honor. Mm. So I don't want to say like, oh, these are the bad emotions that are now coming Mm. up. Like they're just extra emotions that are now coming up that I'm sitting with and trying to honor. And so, yeah, I posted the other day and you saw this where I said Mm. something about how, you know, the bad news is that someone in my family found out about my book, right? And this message spread Mm. rapidly through my family and Mm -hmm. so yeah a family friend reached out to me last Monday so from when we're recording this a week ago and told me that she believed me Mm. right so that's very validating to hear that but then she went on to say essentially that she knew it was happening and that she didn't do anything about it right Mm. and apologize for not doing anything about it and Mm. i'll just say that conversation led to some feelings of betrayal and resentment once we got off the Mm. phone and like i said also just validation that okay someone knows i'm not making this up Mm -hmm. so then my mom called me later that same day and left this nine second voicemail and i had steven listen to it i was like you know what, just tell me if I need to to hear this or not. And let's just say it wasn't a text message full of congratulations Mm. like you've given me, right? It was was the opposite of that. And then from there, I had a cousin text me the next day. And I'm not really sure where I stand with her or what Mm. her point was in reaching out to me. And then later that day, I had a cousin's daughter send me this series of Facebook messages. Uh, and one of the one of the things that they asked was, is it true? And so I'm kind of just sitting with that. Like, wow. What, you know, like, I don't want to assign, you know, bad motives to anyone. And this is a person in middle school, right? So I did tell Stephen, I said, it's interesting how the middle schooler is the only person who reached out to me and just asked me directly you know <laughs> like how the, the middle schooler did that like the adults are not talking to me or spreading yes. that you know but here a middle mm. schooler reached out and is like is it true and so I'm kind of sitting with that and it's like what do you think I just wrote a book of lies <laughs> like I don't know how to take that but mm. anyways I just responded like yes I wrote a book and the events inside of it 
did happen and I'm sending lots of love to you, you know, that kind of thing. And so just again, just sitting with all that has been a bit mm-hmm. overwhelming. And my writing coach and editor, Kim Marsh, want to give Kim a shout out. She reminded me that this is another quote, right now it's like this moment. Mm-hmm. And so that's a phrase that she shared with me a couple months ago that's really kept me grounded throughout this process. Right now it's like this. And this mm-hmm. reminder that it won't always be like this. Mm-hmm. And so right now, while emotions are high and defenses are up, this is what it's like. And so it's just been really key that it's like this right now. It won't always be like this. So sitting mm-hmm. in that, and then I'll say the good news surrounding me and my book being the source of some family gossip is that that means more people are buying the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I can start donating the profits from my book because on October 1st, the budget finally got out of the red on uh, as familiar as family came out of the red. So there's even now some celebration with that uh, and being able to donate the profits from my book to organizations like into account where uh, I, and I did an IG live with Stephanie Crable, who's one of the founders of into account. And yes, I'm excited that I'm not in the negative anymore. And mm-hmm. with my family finding out though, has come a lot of grief. Yeah, grief that's been there all along during this process mm. because I knew what it would cost me to tell my story. Mm. And it's like I've been waiting for them to find out and preparing as best as I could. But I just don't know if anything mm. could have really prepared me for losing more relationships and more mm. tension in my life. Yeah. Mm. Yes. And yeah, I just want to say again, like congrats, you know, for publishing the book and telling your story authentically, because um, I think a hard thing for people who want to release a memoir or maybe stopping themselves is a lot of the people that they're writing about and things that they experience, those people are still alive. And so what would you say to someone who is struggling um, or battling that conflict of should I release my memoir? Should I not? Like these people are still alive. What like what would you say to someone like that who is struggling with that? Yeah. So I remember hearing, and you might know who said this, that adage of like, if you want to be to write better about you, you should have behaved better. <laughs> I've seen idea. this. I love. Yeah, I've reposted yeah. that a few times. Yes. Yeah. So it's like there is that kind of idea. Mm -hmm. And I think that could be really helpful, right? Mm -hmm. To just know that you're not saying anything that's not true, right? You're Mm -hmm. just bringing to public attention something that happened. And I think just, I guess a caution to give is to just know ahead of time how to put some protections in place for yourself legally. (laughs) If Uh it's something like that, you know, like I worked Mm -hmm. through some things with my writing coach and, and editor, Kim, to just, you know, she was like, obviously we can't protect you completely from getting a lawsuit, but here's some things using language like uh-huh. the way I felt was, <laughs> you know, if you can keep things kind of in, you know, this more, it felt like this rather than this definitely happened or this is a fact, right? Because as mm-hmm. soon as we start, even though it's like, we know it's true, yeah. but just that idea of that if we can protect ourselves by using certain language that Mm. doesn't necessarily make it sound like we're just trying to tear this person down. But I think another part of that is knowing that 
people are going to hear the message they want to hear. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I found that very comforting. It's like, if people don't want to believe the truth that you're writing, then Mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of defensiveness. And then they're just not going to believe it. They're going to construct their own reality. And I think that takes a little pressure off, you know, of they're going to be be people who don't believe you, who you're not going to convince, but like reminding yourself, it's not the point. The point of telling your story is for you and your healing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording that so often those of us who have been traumatized, if we have a lot of adverse childhood experiences that can lead to drug use and other self-destructive or harmful behaviors. And then we tell our stories and people will use our, the coping mechanisms we developed as a result of the trauma, they will use those things against us as evidence that we can't be trusted. And so again, it's just the way that if they're not ready to accept what you're saying is true, then it's not up to you to convince them, but you can still mm-hmm. tell your tell your story, right? And and speak about what happened, knowing that you're going to be the primary beneficiary of getting that story out of you. And then there will be secondary beneficiaries as mm-hmm. a result as people yeah. see your authentic story and resonate with it and it will hopefully empower them to tell their own story. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, most definitely. And like, yeah, I love how you started out with, you know, if so, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but yeah, like kind of like you were saying how, um, you know, if you want me, you know, just write kindly of you, my story, you should have treated me better. Um, it's kind of, for me, it's like, you know, writing um your story and being honest about your experiences and how people treated you it's in a sense it's holding people accountable in a way um having having them to face or deal with internally themselves with what they've done and i know you know accountability needs to go much farther than that than a person admitting Mm -hmm. or seeing that they've done but i think I think for those of us who experienced those abuses and different things like that growing up, for us writing that, number one, it helps us process that trauma and just get those pent up feelings out and process. And number two, um, the validation I think that we need to from that, I think a memoir is just so incredible with that. And like the way we can help other people, like they see our story in our own. Um, And you know, and like like you were saying, a lot of people they're not gonna want to accept or believe things because, and I've noticed this in my family, because um, I remember, you know, I've I'm not gonna go into detail, but I've questioned the relationship that my mom has had with her mother, and I'm like, and I just asked her, my mom, like, oh, well, how did? She, and you're very, I can't remember what I said. I was like. You know, did your mom harm you in any way? Because I saw how I saw the patterns repeating of my mom's relationship with her mom, then my relationship with my mom. And I and I asked her, like, did your mom harm you in any way? And she said, oh, oh I love my mom. I love my mom. And like that was it was just like it's interesting because I was like, OK, I'm like two things can be true. You can still love your parent and you can admit that they harmed you in a way. Yeah. But like to her, she idolized or idealized her mother so much 
um, that she couldn't even cope with admitting that she did anything wrong to harm her and that she I think really like you were saying like the as familiar as family that grooming um, grooming of these toxic relationships in these re toxic religious environments it's like authority figures they cannot be touched they're not allowed to be criticized and so as we're kind of getting into that subject um what are the, what are the systemic issues that you see in toxic religion and what really needs to be changed mm -hmm. yeah well i wanted to say it sparked for me even i remember i don't know who said this but someone whose sons both went on to be writers and mm. wrote about her and some of the harmful things she did or you know just not in a flattering yeah. light and people questioning her about that. And she was like, well, if I had known they were both going to grow up to be writers, I would have acted differently. Like she didn't even let it, oh my gosh. Like she didn't, you know, like some people would be like, I can't believe they did it. But she didn't deny that it happened. Mm. She was just like, well, if I had known. And so it's like the, the ego work and the growth work it takes to be able to yeah. not get so defensive to just be like, yes, that is what happened. And if, and I would have acted differently if I had known they were mm. going to grow up and write about this. And in telling my story, I think too, like, I wonder if a part of the defensiveness in my family is because, you know, I name one of my abusers who, yeah. you know, is my mm. quote grandfather. I specifically name him. And then the rest of them are still alive. And I didn't, disclose their identities mm -hmm. and so now there's probably all this speculation about who else could she be talking about and a part of me like i was telling Stephen the other night i was like i dare one of these men who has harmed me to now try to reach out to me or take me down and i'm like i'm mm -hmm. coming for you pedophiles like i yes. will like you know now you mm -hmm. know that i will i just haven't because i think that's up to you to work through figure out make things right with me if i need to come for you i will you know like those yeah. kind of things where it's like mm -hmm. again i'm not, i'm interested primarily in this person's healing right mm -hmm. and then and them now knowing there's nowhere to hide right yeah. and so and yes and i think getting back to also what you shared about your mom and her relationship with her mom mm -hmm. got me thinking about my grandfather and the ways that he was put on a pedestal mm. and the ways that he too was not able to be criticized, yeah. even though there was plenty to criticize, but especially yes. it feels like once someone's dead, we even more so romanticize them in their lives. Oh my gosh. So, yes. Yeah. I don't know. Like, oh. I feel like that's a part of it too, mm -hmm. but to get to your question about systemic changes happening to prevent abuse. Um, and like, if we're mm. talking about in the church in particular, I want to reference this model that into account follows. And like I said, into account is one of the organizations that I'll be donating profits for my book to. And if you visit the website, you can read the into account is committed to supporting survivors and allies seeking justice, accountability, and recovery in Christian context. So within this model mm. of truth telling and accountability, the advocates there at into account work on removing three things, authority, access, and high regard of mm. the of the individual. So in season four of my podcast, The Browning Narrative, I interviewed the co-founders Jay Yoder and Stephanie Crable. And Jay explained that advocates at into account work to remove the authority of the person who's abusing others, because mm -hmm. if that person loses the authority that came with their position that allowed them to abuse, mm -hmm. 
right? If they lose that position, mm. then, uh, and not only allow them to abuse, but allow them to get away with abuse, because like yeah. you were talking about, that mm. protects them and keeps them yeah. from being able to be criticized, then hopefully by not having that authority, it can mitigate additional harm, right? Mm. Prevent additional harm, right? Then the advocates focus on removing the abuser's access to the target population, whether Mm. that population is college students or youth or immigrants, whatever that population Mm. is, now that they don't have their authority, let's remove their access to Mm. the group they're wanting to target, right? And then finally, they work on telling the truth about the abuse and communicating that message to the broader community, Mm. So that that can remove the high regard that the abuser once held so that people will hopefully no longer trust the abuser, though, like we were kind of already talking, we know that isn't always the case. We know that the the conversations around it that get turned into, oh, well, they're just trying to take down a good man of God or this is a witch hunt Mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. So, yeah. And I'm actually reading this book right now. It's called Girlhood by Mm -hmm. Melissa Phoebos, I think. And Melissa wrote about a controlling relationship that she was in and how she would answer the question of how she was doing by thinking of how her girlfriend perceived her. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it was it was all hinged on this controlling relationship. Well, how does this person perceive me? That's how I'm doing. And so then she wrote this powerful sentence that I want to read. She said, it's a shared technique of abusive partners, corporations, cult leaders, despotic governments, and many who benefit from unequal power structures and wish to continue benefiting from them to convince the disempowered to identify with the needs of the powerful instead of their own needs. Mm. And so this pattern, right, we see it repeat over and over again around us when someone comes forward in a church context to say that they've been abused, the congregation will rush to protect the Mm -hmm. one who used their position to exploit and to harm others rather than rallying around the person who's been harmed, right? And in these types of religious environments, this leader has convinced the congregation to identify with the leader and the leader's needs instead of with their own needs and the needs Mm. of other congregants, right? And I want to emphasize this like disempowered language Mm. here because in these high control religious environments, the congregation knows that this leader is the one with the power to excommunicate them and to cut Mm. them off from their entire community. Because people might say like, I'm not disempowered in this church community or church members aren't disempowered. But again, it comes back to this someone Mm. has authority someone has access and someone has high regard and they are now using that to get you to pity them and feel sorry Mm. for them instead of thinking about yourself and the people who are uh, like you who are disempowered alongside you so with that in mind this model of removing authority access and high regard and with the knowledge of what's happening in these high control groups as Mm -hmm. explained by melissa Phoebus, i want to say that a big systemic change that needs to happen is this dismantling of hierarchy Mm. this dismantling of a system that would allow anyone particularly someone who abuses others Mm -hmm. to then accumulate authority access to vulnerable people and high regard that they don't deserve Mm. right that they just get as just by extension of having this position it you shouldn't just get high regard because you're quote a pastor right or -hmm. whatever position that you hold and the thing is any system that's propping up this kind of a power dynamic is going to create a culture favorable to abuse, Mm. right? Where abuse can thrive. So churches have to be rooted in mutuality Mm. 
that benefits everyone and leads to flourishing for everyone. Because if they're not, if they're not rooted in mutuality, then they're going to be rooted in a hierarchy that defaults to the preferences of the abusive church Mm. leader or church leadership. Right. And so I just have a few more things I want to say here in order to dismantle the hierarchy. I think this requires intentional examinations of the theologies as well as Mm. the ideologies that are held in the church. And that could be gender, racial, Mm. class hierarchies, right? Because we know that so many of these toxic beliefs and the harm that is in these churches and high control environments, those stem from patriarchy, white supremacy and capitalism, right? And Mm. so, you know, I wanted to say like, this means that that complementarianism has to go, right? This belief that these mm. gender heterosexual men have authority given to them by God over mm. women in their home and in yeah. the church. And you know how some people would say in the society at large, like that has to go mm-hmm. as well as homophobia, transphobia, purity yeah. culture, all these things that are connected to complementarianism and to the yeah. rigid mm-hmm. gender uh, beliefs and hierarchy, all that yeah. has to go, right? Emily Joy Allison's book, Church Two, I just want to say, like, they must read on on this purity culture yeah. connected to mm-hmm. complementarianism. I would say this means that, you know, racism and a racial caste system, they have to go, right? Yeah. It's not sufficient to say at a majority white congregation or even a, quote, multi-ethnic congregation, like, all people are welcome here mm. if we're then expecting in these churches, black people or other people of color to assimilate Mm. to a white culture. And finally, this means that churches have to stop operating from a scarcity model from this myth of scarcity that is fueled by capitalism, because this culture of hustling and wearing ourselves out in service Uh, to the church, Mm. you know, and we say that it's all for the Lord you know, really, we're just being exploited yes. as we labor for free in the church while church leadership sits quite mm. comfortably at the top. Yes. Like uh-huh. all that has to go. And, you know, author KJ Ramsey was on the Church Hearts podcast mm-hmm. and her episode was called Naming Spiritual Abuse. And I think she diagnosed the problem well when she said, I don't think most pastors or church leaders would say that they see people as products. But what happens is that we become we become so fixated on growth and locked Mm. into rhythms of rushing and hurrying that we can't actually as leaders be present with our people in a way that honors their humanity. Mm -hmm. And then she says, any system that doesn't have adequate room for the practice of generous presence with one another Mm. and real shepherding, knowing your people and being known by them is going to create a system in which abuse happens and people are diminished, right? Mm. So that's a key part of it. Like we are in these systems that are established in a hierarchy, people are diminished. So dismantle all the hierarchies, right? And then do the work of healing the trauma Mm. that we carry in our bodies as a result of either existing in those systems of oppression, like capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy or perpetuating those systems of oppression and for some of us that's both right like Mm. i can say that i exist in those systems and was harmed and and i'm still harmed by those systems while also participating in upholding them right Mm -hmm. until i started doing that work of dismantling the beliefs of hierarchy Mm. in myself and deciding that no i'm not going to participate in any system that pits people against each other 
the disempowered people. Mm. We don't need to be pitted against each other. We need to be working together yeah. to dismantle the hierarchies and these mm. abusive systems so that that no longer happens in these mm. churches. Mm. Yes, thank you so much for that. I know it's such a complex issue and you <laughs> explained it so eloquently and logically, but I think one thing I want to dig into um, is how you're talking about these places need to examine themselves, um, which I think a lot of these places sadly do not want to do. And I, I noticed in a toxic church that I grew up in that as people left and it just it was just really awful how many people left the church and it was never like oh my gosh what have we done it was like pointing the finger at them uh like you're backsliding or uh like you're you know you want to go and sin more or mm-hmm. it's never thinking oh well how did what did we do how is our system run um and there's just like again that it starts with removing that hierarchy because that hierarchy, the person at the top is on a pedestal. And so, and you know, it's interesting because there are, I've I've kind of, for me, looking back on my church and trying to think of the power dynamics um, and how, you know, in, in cultic or in high control Christian churches or toxic Christian churches, there's like this, it's interesting how like um, the language is different, but it's the same, but it's been interesting to learn about cults and compare them. But like in cults, it's like the inner circle of people who know all this information that a lot of the other mm-hmm. people do not know. Right. And there are things that abuse and things that go on that they don't tell anyone else. And like in the church that I grew up in, it was like the deacons and then the pastor and the pastor was of course still at the hierarchy. And the thing with that, I noticed um, with that, with the deacons and number one, it was all men, no women, women were not allowed (laughs) to be a deacon or in that role. And that's the patriarchy again, digging into that of like, and to me, we need voices, women's voices in churches heard so desperately um, and sadly, like in those kinds of toxic environments, uh, the voices are not heard, sadly. And so, um, and I think, again, that examining is where it needs to start mm-hmm. of being like, oh, like maybe this hierarchy isn't working or maybe this actually isn't like the Bible. Maybe this is just tradition that we've just taken on and we've claimed it as truth just because people have done it before us. Um, and you know, I think it's something that is hard for people to do. And thankfully I see um, our generations <laughs> are trying to do that. Yeah. And a lot of people hate that. I like with the deconstruction or the dis- dismantling toxic theology or decolonization. Um, a lot of people hate that. And it's yeah. been interesting because I offer um, a free deconstruction guide, which is basically like a list of resources for people to go to. I don't tell people how to think or what to think. I'm like, here are resources to dig into these. And I've just gotten terrible backlash from certain people mm-hmm. for it. <laughs> like, I've, it's just so funny to me sometimes. Like, I've, I've had people like call me a socialist and then I should just go leave America and go to Venezuela and different things. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> what? I'm like, these are real issues <laughs> that exist. And, you know, for people who don't want to admit that white supremacy 
even though it might not be obvious to the people there, but because of tradition of how that started and how it got passed down, they didn't question it. It's still there, that white supremacy things that they don't consider. Um, And sadly, I've seen in toxic religion, a lot of people justify toxic beliefs, harmful behaviors and abusive things in the name of religion. Um, and that's something that I've really been digging into in therapy. And I, you know, I, I love Heather Heath and like the, yeah. the name of her book, Lovingly Abused, mm-hmm. because that's when I look back in this toxic religion and this toxic culture, I'm like, oh, you know, and like what you say in your book, we were abused in the name of love. We were told mm-hmm. that it was love and that we, you know, we shouldn't question like, oh, like this is what God wants or this is the best way. And that's the hardest thing I think for me to admit in therapy was like, oh my gosh, like my parents were abusive, but they called it love. They used religion to not hold themselves accountable to justify behaviors. And that's something that's really hard um, to admit. And I think that's what's so great about examining these systems, because what, what really bothers me is when these these people in these toxic environments who come after me on social media (laughs) and they don't want to have a conversation. Like I would be glad to have that conversation respectful with anyone, but a lot of people, especially like in these toxic environments, they come after me and they're like, why do you focus on all the negative? Why don't you focus on all the good things? And part of me is like, like I get what they're saying, but then I'm like, if I am aware, if I know that there's an abusive situation, happening and i want to be like oh well i know that's happening but i don't want to say anything because i don't want to be negative and it's just to me it's just like that's not helpful it's kind of like sadly like with a lot of situations and your situations of people not saying anything um and, and when people say that to me i just imagine like what if someone in a church came up to you and said this person in our church is abusing all these children like, would you want to say, oh, quit being so negative, just shut up. Like, mm. let's talk about the positive things. Let's ignore those issues. And it's like, that's not going to, ignoring problems, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not going to make anything better. Right. At all. And people aren't going to be held accountable. And it's just this, this kind of like magical thinking, wishful thinking kind of attitude that I've noticed in churches of like, and in which I get it, how like, I want to put my guard down. I don't want to think about anything harmful being here. I want this to be a safe space mm-hmm. and pretend it's a safe space because I don't want to be uncomfortable. I want to feel comfortable. And so when someone comes up with stories of abusive people in their church or in their family, that makes them uncomfortable because they have this idea in their head of that they want it to be, they idealize it. And experiencing information that goes against what you currently believe about something that will cause cognitive dissonance. And it's un- cognitive dissonance is uncomfortable for people. And when people, if people don't want to deal with that, there's a lot of shame and blame, uh, minimizing and diminishing and validating all these things because they don't want to deal with the reality of a situation. And that's what I see happening, sadly, with you and your family of they don't want to deal with that reality um and to me like it's it's so so sad 
Um, and to me, that's why I know we were talking earlier about Jeanette McCurdy's book. I'm glad my mom died. And I think why I think you will love it so much too. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people do. And it's because she, she calls out the romanticizing, um, of these roles. And specifically she digs into the romanticizing of the mother of like on this pedestal. And she says that not not all people not all mothers not you know these caregivers they're they don't all deserve to be on the pedestal (laughs) and she talks about um going to her mother's grave for the last time and there were all these really nice words on the tombstone and she's like none of these things are true about her and she talks about how we we can romanticize people after they die even like worse and like i remember going to my grandpa's funeral who died almost a year ago and going to the funeral and um hearing them talk like he was the most amazing person ever and like when i sat there (laughs) i was like who is this person i didn't meet this person (laughs) yeah yeah um not that i experienced any like horrible abuse from my grandfather i just just to put it short, he was just, he was very neglectful mm-hmm. emotionally and just wasn't there for a lot of people at all. This is all I'm going to say about that. Um, and to hear people talk like he was this super nice, amazing person, mm-hmm. just spread love to everyone. I'm like, no, he, <laughs> he was very neglectful to his children and even to his own grandchildren. And so I'm like, why, <laughs> why are we doing this? And like, I, I understand that a funeral shouldn't be a tomato bite of <laughs> like mm-hmm. throwing tomatoes at the coffin <laughs> right, and like right. i i get that funerals are supposed to be respectful but i'm like can we be respectful and still be authentic and be honest mm, yeah without like really like saying a lot of things that aren't true <laughs> at all yeah. um and so and the thing is again two things can be true you can still love and care for someone and admit that they've harmed you and that they've done wrong and you can hold them accountable for that and that's the thing in this culture i think is one of many things many things our generations are trying to dismantle and uncover is that you know showing that yes we're holding you accountable because we care for you and we want you to heal. And that's what I love about what you were saying earlier about holding these people accountable. It's like, I want you to heal. I want you Mm -hmm. to do better. And that is so great. And sadly, a lot of these people can see this as like, um, just as, Oh, like, Oh, they're just hating on me or they want to tear my name down or something. And they don't want to admit to the harm that they've caused. Um, but if I think, you know, if everyone could get to the point where they could, um admit to themselves you know they've done something wrong and oh i need to do better um the world would be a much better place and and i think sadly there are many there's so much complexity to these toxic systems so why these different things persist but i think um in these toxic religious environments um it's like if we if we fail in an area it's like it's a permanent mark and I think that makes it harder. Um, now, for for people who are abusive, that's that's not just a mistake. That's not a, that's not a slip. Abuse is not a slip up or a mistake. And that's why I get so tired of hearing the 
phrase like oh like you know nobody's nobody's perfect i get mm-hmm. really frustrated when i hear that it's like yes i know people make mistakes but abuse is intentional mm-hmm. um and is perpetuated um by systems of control and like even with in which i'm sure you've seen in families that generational trauma this toxic mm-hmm. family dynamics that keep getting passed down and down until someone like you said stop like we're not doing this anymore the the mm-hmm. trauma these toxic relationships are stopping um and people like that sadly and families they can get labeled as the black sheep because the family members don't want to see what's wrong in the family dynamics of their relationship so they they have to demonize the person that's trying to hold them accountable be like oh like they're oh they're bitter or, oh they're the black sheep like blah, blah blah they're this because they don't want to deal with that so i think you know getting to the place um of you know people who are abusive you know like need to be really and sadly in a lot of these churches they need to be reported to authorities um and which sadly in a lot of these systems there i've sadly seen it where they're fired or they're told to leave and then they go to another church and they do the same thing again and then they are told to leave and they go to another place and they do the mm-hmm. same thing again and they're not held accountable and there's just so much carnage and wreckage yeah. along the way and so you know i think we're seeing progress like with the me too movement that just made so many people speak out about the abuse and different things that they had experienced and tried to hold people um accountable um and so you know for you and your journey through all of this and i know you know your faith has obviously had a transformation what does your faith look like now compared mm-hmm. to growing up in that toxic environment and you know what has changed yeah well Okay, I will answer the question, but I was taking so many notes. So many things you said were just like, yes, yes, yes. Like the self-accountability piece Mm. was such a game changer because accountability to quote God or accountability to a community Mm -hmm. group of people really doesn't matter if I, if I'm not accountable first to myself. And Mm -hmm. so I think that is such a key piece that is missing in Mm -hmm. our churches yeah that was missing for me i didn't really have any Mm -hmm. self-accountability until i left church so there's Uh, that and that self-regulation taking Mm -hmm. responsibility for my own my own behavior and so abusers aren't going to ever take responsibility if there's Mm -hmm. never self-accountability right yeah they're definitely not being held accountable externally Mm -hmm. they've also constructed such alternate realities that they're not going to hold themselves accountable internally but Mm-hmm. There was that. And then I thought about this quote, sorry, a tweet that I saw about complementarian mm. marriages saying how they, you know, this person was speculating that complementarians are constantly saying how hard marriage is because they're trying to keep women in abusive mm. relationships. Because yeah. if if it's like, oh, well, all marriages are hard, then women won't get out of these toxic marriages. Mm. Right. And so also it's like, yeah, my marriage was really hard under complementarianism because again, you get back to hierarchy. Mm. There is a literally a whole hierarchy that you're trying to uphold Mm -hmm. or this one person, you know, me, I have to be the submitter all the time. Mm. And anytime that I don't want to submit, it's evidence of me being, you know, um, 
contrarian and wanting to quote usurp my husband's mm-hmm. authority. That's literally what I was told. Like if you if you are obstinate to having to be the only one submitting in your marriage, then you are trying to usurp your husband's power, right? And so, anyways, that same line of reasoning. I see that in churches too mm-hmm. of, well, no church is perfect. Like how you were saying, how people feel, yes. well, nobody's perfect. And it's so dismissive yeah, and it, mm-hmm. and it keeps us from examining yes. the institution mm-hmm. and you have people who are acting like, well, it worked for me. Right. Or this, this is like, <laughs> Well, of course, because, and I will say like the person who in a marriage who was giving me all this marriage advice, her husband was amazing. Mm -hmm. So it's like, of course, this kind of, in a way it can quote work for you because your husband's really easygoing and Mm -hmm. like complementarianism to a degree even worked for us because Steven didn't have the kind of, he doesn't have the kind of personality that's like, I'm the leader, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, but we can't say, oh, well, because it's working for me, the system is fine, mm-hmm. right? Because there yeah. are plenty of people, plenty of men who do not need this yeah. messaging of, mm-hmm. you know, you're the leader. And then there are plenty of yeah. pastors who don't need the message of you're the leader, right? And mm-hmm. so regardless of who it's, quote, working for, there's plenty of people it's not working for, yeah. right? And so you know, at the church I was a part of, there was always this mantra of like, we're a family Mm. as if that then absolves this uh, examination, like we were talking about. And it was this, we were always hustling, always working for the church, all these things. And when we were exhausted, that was then seen as evidence of us as broken people rather Mm. than evidence of a broken system or a system Mm. that needed to be examined because the system needed to be protected, right? A reputation mm-hmm. needs to be protected. Like that's what I'm seeing with the backlash with my book. A reputation won't protect itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so with my family, there's that. And then in churches, there's, oh, well, the reputation is not going to protect itself. Like when we left, I have never, ever seen the church move, church leadership move so fast to try to meet with the people from our old group and do damage control. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. And so, yes, there's this dedication to protecting the projected image of the institution, mm. right? Because those at the top, they're benefiting from the way things are mm. running, right? And, you know, when I was at that church, there was this mantra among those of us who wanted to see things change of be the change you want to see in the church. Mm. And there was this idea of we're going to change the church from the bottom up. And I just don't know how often that works Yes, in a hierarchical mm. system where the top controls everything. I just don't mm. know how effective mm. that strategy is. Yeah. I'm not going to say that's not what someone should be doing, trying to change this. So like, I'm not going to say that. I'm just saying it didn't work for me. Mm. And I don't really have a lot of like, I can't think of it a situation mm. off the top of my head in the church where I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, it was effective there. And so, yes, these, these systems are dedicated to preserving this projected image of their institution rather than protecting those people who they would say are image bearers within mm. the institution. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, the final two things I'll say about that. And then I'll talk about my faith looks like now is mm. that if you've heard of that experiment with the mice where I think it was mice, 
where they were raised in this chaotic environment. Oh, yes. And then they were given the opportunity to go to this calm environment, but they chose the chaotic yes. environment because of what was familiar. Yes. So again, like that's been a part of my journey is like, mm. just because the situation is familiar doesn't mean it's safe. So just because yes. the person is familiar doesn't mean they're safe. Mm. And, you know, and I was thinking too about how, you were saying this person causes harm here and gets hired here and continues abusing and goes here. And so it's like that pastor who spiritually abused me at the church that I write about left the church. We still don't know all the details of why, and I'm Mm -hmm. just really don't care, but found out that he texted someone uh, was texting back and forth with someone I know recently and told this person that he was quote, getting the itch to get back into ministry because he left the church mm-hmm. and when was not working in another church. So he's quote, getting the itch to get back into ministry. And like, my whole thing is like, go see a doctor about that itch. You know what I mean? Like yes. you don't need to be in a position of authority. You haven't yeah. done the healing and we know he hasn't done the healing because with healing comes accountability, right? Mm-hmm. Like the two have to go together and accountability would be repairing the relationships that mm-hmm. he has destroyed. And he's yeah. not done that. So he is not ready to be back in a position of ministry. And I don't know if he ever should be back in a position of ministry because like we're talking about like abuse and all of those things. So anyways, it's funny that you should ask me uh, what my faith looks like now, because I've actually been revisiting some of my shifts in my faith because I have a little book of poetry that Mm. I'm planning to do a soft launch for as an ebook on Amazon Mm. for $2.99 and Really, like the self-publishing and launching process for As Familiar's Family just drained me, took a Mm -hmm. lot out of me. And so I wanted to fuse some joy back into my writing. And so over the past few weeks, I've revisited this collection of poems that I wrote in 2019. And I'm currently editing them. And it's called Reflections from a Former Evangelical. And originally it said, you know, a collection of poems informed by my current worldview. Then Mm. I reread them and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't agree with so much of this from 2019. And there's already an asterisk on the end of it. And at the bottom of the cover, I had like an asterisk that says subject to change as I do, because it's like, I realized even Mm. in 2019, I'm going to continue changing. Like that's the point of this journey. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like this asterisk is just that nod to my continually shifting beliefs and faith. And I love some poems from Marla Taviano's book, Unbelieve poems on the path Mm -hmm. to becoming a heretic. And so it's this uh, pretty purple book right here. And so the first one she writes that I want to share, it's called the one thing I'm not. And she wrote, Lost means you don't know where you are or how to get back where you came from. I know both of those things. I'm just not going back and I don't know what lies ahead, Mm. but but whatever I am, I'm not lost. Mm. And the second one I want to share is titled, where have I landed? You know, because people will ask like, where have you landed on such and such now? Right. And so she Mm -hmm. says, that's the thing. I can fly now. And damn, what a glorious view. <laughs> you could see so much from up here. Wow. And dang, there are other birds too. I might descend a light from time to time, but why would I land in any mm-hmm. one place for very long at all when I have wings? I've mm-hmm. always had wings. And so I just love those poems and think they really encapsulate some of what I'm feeling because I would say my decision to leave the toxic religion I was groomed for. And when I say Mm -hmm. groomed for, I am talking about how 
being sexually abused in childhood mm. led to this misbelief that my body was not my own. Um, and then, for example, then I end up at a church at 19 where the theology is, you are not your own. You were bought yeah. with a price, uh, you know, and it's like survivors of sexual assault don't need the message that our body is not our own. Yeah. We need to be equipped with how to establish boundaries and mm. to have safe relationships. To practice that yeah. So that's what I mean when I say really grooming me and setting me up for being susceptible to the lies mm. of the toxic mm-hmm. theology I encounter. Mm. Right. And so leaving that toxic religion that I was groomed for gave me permission to embrace this new way of life. You know, if I had stayed in that toxic religion, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to question. Right. Mm. Because curiosity is stifled in those environments. Right. Mm. And I wouldn't have the opportunity to question alongside fellow wanderers, people Mm. who, you know, we're out here flying, you know, as as Marla says. And, you know, I wrote about this in my book, how a simple search of the Christian Standard Bible online revealed that there are two. 154 entries for the word wilderness spanning Mm. from Genesis to Revelation. And so it's like the more people I encounter out here in quote, the wilderness, the more I'm reminded that the wilderness doesn't have to be a lonely place. Right. And so my faith currently looks like a lot of wandering in the wilderness. And in my previous context, I was led to believe at that church that if I left, I'd be all alone. Right. Mm. And I heard Dan Matlock uh, he characterized this as the church using quote belonging as a weapon mm. when he and his wife, Kelly Matlock were on the existential podcast with Corey Leak. Yeah. So it's like after leaving the church where I was spiritually abused and stepping away from church altogether, Stephen and I started hosting kind of a house church of sorts, mm. a rest area that we were like, yeah, these are other people coming out of the church where I was spiritually abused and where they were harmed. And so our home served as kind of this hub for people where similarly wounded people could come together. And it was really energizing, but also Mm. shared trauma bonding, right? Like trauma bonded together. Mm. But then we were just kind of a pit stop on the way for people to either go to other churches or something like that. Then COVID-19, the pandemic started, right? Virtually eliminating all of that in real life, quote, community and replacing it with virtual spaces. Mm -hmm. And so by that time, I was starting to ask myself, you know, so this would have been 2020, like how helpful is this evangelical title, right? And am I Mm. content with not having a place of belonging outside of Mm. the church, right? Is Mm. is it okay to know that I love God and that I'm loved by God, Mm. you know, and and whatever that means for me as that shifts, like, is that enough? And I was thinking about how the the late Rachel Held Evans, you know, how she would talk about just wrestling with Mm. God, wrestling like Jacob to wrestle. And so, yeah. And I was, there I was in 2020, just like hoping God would carry me as I wandered labelless in the wilderness without that label of evangelical. And I wasn't sure if I'd ever find a church where I felt accepted, but then I did. Right. And it's, it's again, it's still a virtual space, Mm -hmm. um, but it took me some time to feel accepted there. And I would say that in my day to day, I'm still quite isolated, but it's that idea of, I know I'm not alone yeah. and how I'm seeking out spaces where all of me and not just a version of me or a part of me, where all mm. of me can be welcomed. And that yeah. includes the church that I've attended virtually, the Well Hawaii, as mm. well as like book clubs that I've been part of. One of those is with a historian, Letty Gore and Letty's Patreon. Mm. And the other is led by Tasha Hunter of the When We Seek podcast and Andrea Miller of the Her Story Speaks podcast. And mm. I would say my fate looks like a journey into holistic flourishing, oh. much more, mm. much more 
holistic rather than just focusing on certain aspects, right? It looks like working on myself Mm. and calling for accountability, starting with that self-accountability and Mm. humility-laced self-introspection, right? It looks like healing from systems of oppression, Mm. like we talked about, and participating in the healing of the world around me. And I'll just say that writing and self-publishing as familiar as family and chronicling my journey into and out of toxic religion, that whole thing it took so much out of me, but it helped me gain a lot of clarity and compassion for myself and other people mm. and more of a sense of calmness out here in quote the wilderness. Right. And I would say my faith looks like building a relationship with my body, mm. letting her know she can trust me and knowing that I can trust oh, her. Yeah. And that foundation has been this place that I've been able to grow from and practicing kindness and gentleness towards myself and with myself and how I talk to myself, how I talk about myself and my body and my emotions and lots of curiosity and compassion for myself along the way with guidance from a therapist and internal family systems, model Mm. therapy. And I'll just say that leading with that curiosity and leading with compassion toward myself has spilled over into leading with curiosity and compassion toward new beliefs that I explore but also towards um, other people, right? Mm. And in my interactions with other people. And so I just, I hope all of that and more Mm. for anyone who listens to this episode or anyone who reads my book. Mm. Yes, I love that so much. And like uh, the holistic approach, it's kind of something that I've, I guess you would say had an approach towards my own life. And this is what I, when I talk to other people, I'm like, you know, I want to grow in every area of my life. Mm -hmm. And in that toxic environment, I cannot do that. And so, um, and it's interesting, you know, also this is a thought that came to my mind when we were talking about accountability um, because my mind goes back to being in church. I don't know. Do you, was there anything like called accountability partners? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, we had accountability groups, or Our I think groups. we called them GCDs, Gospel-Centered Discipleship Groups. Mm, interesting. Yes. Okay. And so to me, I was looking back, and like, a lot of that really wasn't accountability of what should have been happening, because that's when we think of that, because there are, there are the labels like that of like accountability partner, but for what I saw and experienced as accountability... It's, are you following the group's rules? Are you conforming? Um, yep. And that's the issue with those, those, what they call accountability is that it's assuming the system is completely right and there's nothing wrong with it. And you need to be following it. But that's just, that was something that came to my mind. And I'm like, yeah. remembering those things. I'm like, uh, like, oh my gosh. Like I cringe at some of the, <laughs> the things, dynamics and labels and things that they used. Um, I'm trying, for some reason, I feel like I'm forgetting a question. <laughs> Let's see how long. Oh yeah. How long have you been working on this book? Cause I'm just curious. That. that was the one. Oh yes. Okay. I'll, I'll try to be brief in my answer of this one, but yeah, I first wrote my story down mm-hmm. just the first iterations of it about seven ish years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that early draft had some of the first thoughts that would one day morph into this book as familiar as family but obviously the book i've published is very different because i as a person am very different from who i was then um but yeah i wrote that and then i didn't touch it for like five or six years something like that 
And then I picked my story back up in March, 2020. And then mm. I wrote this third person fictionalized narrative mm. based off my life, but giving some distance to it. I think that yeah. really helped me process the story a little more. And then last year, in 2021, I changed it back to memoir. And in January this mm. year, 2022, I finished the draft that the beta readers read in February. Mm-hmm. And the tentative title at the time was Restored Dignity, not even As Familiar's Family. So a different mm-hmm. title altogether. And I think it was helpful for me to tell myself, like, this is tentative. It can change because even though I didn't think it would change, mm-hmm. I wanted to remind myself to hold it kind of loosely. Right. And the reason it changed to Ask mm. Family was because I had a sentence in there about the pastor who I named Jake, where I said, Jake's emotional detachment was as familiar as family to me. And author Heather Heath, who you talked about, mm, yeah. lovingly abused, Heather's feedback, she just said, I really like that phrase. Like, she wasn't trying to say you should name it that. She was just like, yeah. I really like that phrase. And so... Yeah, I that was what I decided to take the title um, to. And then I did a Kickstarter in April. And then I started working with Kim Marsh, the founder of the Open Book Company in May this year. And so really, mm-hmm. again, working through it, finding it really challenging to edit, to figure out what to include in this book, what to save for a future book, right? Because beta readers have given me feedback, what they wanted to know more on. And so I worked on that and then added mm-hmm. far too much. And then with Kim's help, cut it back. And so at the end of August this year, I uploaded the manuscript to Ingram Spark and Amazon KDP. So I would say once mm-hmm. I picked the story back up, I spent about two and a half years really working on it to get it mm-hmm. to the version yeah. that was published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I, I, I definitely understand too that process because you know for me there have been times where i've had there have been months where i'm like i haven't didn't touch yeah the the um the draft of my book because there is some moments that there are things that were hard you know because you're reliving a lot of it when you're writing it especially for the first time and i think for me as i've been writing my book i haven't really um i haven't really been putting pressure or expectations i've been hailing it with being very delicate and and careful and like giving that um, compassion and understanding that, you know, doing it at my own pace. And like, I was so excited to finish the first draft this year. Um, And now I'm working on the second draft. So, (laughs) Um, and I recently too, I'm about, I'm going to announce this on social media, but I just found an editor um Yay. for my book <laughs> so oh, that's exciting. that is exciting to see um the different the, the progress that's happening and like i'm trying to enjoy the journey along the way and not because i feel like a lot of us are like oh like i'll be happy when this happens but then mm-hmm. i'm just trying to enjoy the process um of every moment as i'm writing and you know therapy has been so great um for helping me realize a lot of things and grow um and you know add those insights into the book um so like again like like congratulations for publishing this because i know like it's not an easy thing um to be authentic and vulnerable and to tell your story and um to risk the backlash too from people Mm -hmm. who aren't who aren't gonna like the truth who don't want to accept uh, reality but you know before we end this episode is there anything else you would like to say to listeners well i just was reminded when you said about we'll think oh well at this stage then this yeah. and 
just that reminder from Marla about gratitude, gratitude, mm. gratitude. And I was thinking about how little me, little girl me, who was writing oh. my Lisa Frank diary, how there's no way that I would even have, but yeah, to just think back to then, the fact that I even wrote a book, mm. you know, like how proud she would be of me. Oh. And like, what? Right. Yeah. But then also something that was really cool is that again, putting no expectations on it, mm. but I ended up being like, uh, in the paperback, making it to number 99. So in the top 100 in oh. the category, abusive family relationships. And then on yeah. the Kindle version, I think it was like number 84 in abusive oh, family relationships. Right. Yeah. And so it was just like, I, I never expected that to happen. And then yeah. I didn't think at any point in that process, like when those things were happening, I just enjoyed it for what it was mm. because I was like, I didn't even expect to get a book done yeah. publish like so much gratitude mm -hmm. at each step of it and then whatever happens yeah. it's just something to celebrate and to just yes. know that yeah I didn't keep watching because I was just like oh well now that's made it there you know it's obviously fallen mm -hmm. very far in the ratings because that's how fickle the whole thing is yeah and so not using that as a barometer of the success yes. book, right like yeah but enjoying that it did happen like that's yes. awesome so mm -hmm. yeah I just think that letting my guide be mm -hmm. that I told my story for myself first yeah right that whole idea of I was the primary beneficiary yeah. But then also there are plenty of secondary beneficiaries and the people who are supposed to find it, who are mm. supposed to find my book, they're going to find yeah. it. And the people who are supposed to be helped by it will be mm. helped by it. Oh. oh, wow. Thank you so much, Nikki, for coming on the show. I always enjoy um, our conversations. And again, so proud of you for this book and getting it out there is so brave. Um, and I hope many more people will um continue to find it and you know for anyone listening i'm going to link uh, her book in the show notes so please go you know buy it wherever you want i'll put all the links to that um if you want to sign copy from nikki herself order it from her website and i'll put that link also um but thank you everyone for listening this was speaking up with andrew pledger thank you for listening to speaking up with andrew pledger your support is much appreciated. Please leave a review and share with friends and family. And if you can, please support me on Patreon. And the link is in my description. Thank you so much for listening to Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger.